Hello, welcome back to Urban Design Room. We've had quite a long break. We meant to come back to some of the episodes at the end of last year, um, but quite a few things have gone on in our, our own lives. Um, we're here again with an episode in a quite an unusual context with the um, global COVID-19 coronavirus crisis. A lot of people working from home, a lot of businesses closed at the time, and quite a serious global event that's going on. Um, but we thought perhaps there's some good, interesting topics to talk about around um, design, around cities, around planning and transport. But um, first of all, I'd just like to maybe catch up a bit. I'm, I'm here with Danny Orwin and Lucy Warwick. And um, yeah, so we just want to have a quick maybe update to say what we've been doing, if, if anyone would like to hear. So I finished a master's in urban design over the past few months, and I'm now working in a transport planning team, working on active transport projects, a lot of walking and cycling stuff, and hopefully bringing some urban design perspective to um, a transport planning team. And um, yeah, so Lucy, where are you at the moment? Hi, John. Uh, yeah, I'm in, well, right now I'm sat in Salford uh, <laughs> in the back room. Yeah, I am still, I'm an urban planner at LUC for those who haven't heard my other many appearances on the Urban Design Rooms podcasts. Um, so yeah, I'm an urban and environmental planner. So currently I'm working on a lot of green infrastructure projects, but I'm also getting a bit involved in um, sort of community-led housing and co-housing projects, trying to get one of those kicked off in Manchester. So that's actually informed a bit of my thinking and reflecting over what coronavirus means about our places and our communities, which I'm sure will come on to you later. Yeah, nice. Uh, Danny, what about you? Probably at the, the same time as you were finishing your master's, John, I was starting a new job in, in Leeds. So um, lecturing in, in film and screen media. And uh, that involves me commuting every day from Manchester to, to Leeds. So that's been a sort of heavy slog and uh, a lot of adjustment for myself in terms of time available to, to work on podcasts. Until and recently. Until recently. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> And now, uh, yeah, so I've been working at home, obviously, for the, for the past few weeks and getting into cooking a lot more than I was um, and really enjoying being outside when I can. So I think that's something we want to touch on later. So just what we're going to do in this podcast is um, we all want to bring up a different topic or a different um, issue around suburban design, planning, cities um, around the COVID-19 crisis that we're in at the moment. So. I'm going to start and I'd like to just open a bit of discussion around um, what's happening in certain cities around emergency bike lanes and transport, and street closures, and widening footpaths and pavements. And then Lucy's going to introduce and talk a bit about housing and um, community and what lessons we might learn or what perspectives you might get from what's going on at the moment. And then towards the end, we want to have a bit of discussion with Danny because as he mentioned, um, well, as we mentioned, he's living more in the city centre of Salford, a really quickly regenerating area. But what's happened at the moment has, I think, changed kind of the feel of the area. And um, we want to delve into Danny's experiences and his viewpoints of the city at the moment. And hopefully find some lessons or just some interesting things to discuss out of that. So, with my uh, co-presenters here, are happy with that introduction? I'm happy to proceed. Yeah. <laughs> good for me okay cool <laughs> right well um let's delve in so i don't know this is often something where i in my head i think that everyone's been hearing about this and then as i start to explain it i realize that it's perhaps a, a small clique within urban design twitter 
But basically, there has been some really interesting things happening in cities around the world uh, with the COVID-19 crisis about street closures and what's been termed emergency bike lanes and emergency widening of footways. And so the context of this is obviously that people are avoiding, being asked to avoid public transport because of risk of transmission of the virus. Um, but what this has meant is that people, the essential workers of stillness yet to work, um, are now walking and cycling. Well, this is causing congestion on footways, been asked to keep two meters apart, um, which is becoming really difficult. So people are walking out into the road, which creates danger. Or indeed, there are no cycle lanes in most cities are going to those places where they need to be on the major routes. And that's causing more danger as people are cycling more to work rather than taking public transport. And then on top of that, obviously, people need space to exercise. In the UK at the moment, thankfully, we're still allowed to spend time outside exercising. Um, but that's meant that a lot of um, park spaces or um, indeed pavements again, or whether it be um, car-free routes that people like to exercise on, they're becoming very congested. I know that in Salford, where we're based as a car-free route that's really popular anyway, but the counters have been showing that uh, during this um, time that it's actually had the highest numbers of people using this this um, car-free route um, that's ever had. And you, if you go down there, there's a lot of people there, which is causing the issue with social distancing. Um, and then finally, just as a point as to why these uh, measures have come into place in certain cities is um, because actually with less traffic on the roads in general, in terms of vehicles, we're seeing higher speeds of vehicles, which is creating more danger. I know that it's just come out in Greater Manchester that TFGM, the Transport Greater Manchester, have said that Four in ten cars are speeding on Greater Manchester's roads at the moment, which causes a lot of danger. And the mayor of Greater Manchester, Andy Burnham, yesterday said that he would like to see um, some street closures and some emergency widening of footways and new cycle routes um, during this time. So that is a context. And so cities that have already been doing this. So um, New York have put in emergency bike lanes and widened some footways. They saw a 50% increase in cycle journeys in the last couple of weeks of people are avoiding public transport or just cycling for exercise. Um, Budapest have put in emergency cycle lanes and um, Bogota have, in the last, I think, three weeks it's been, they've added 47 miles and that's 76 kilometers of emergency cycle lanes because people are avoiding public transport and essential workers, sons get to work, people, um, again, who just want to exercise. And so, yeah, this is a context, kind of an interesting time because often when you are changing infrastructure, changing street paths, can be very politically difficult to do for um, leaders and communities because any change in the environment, um, there's always going to be some people who are against that, they're perhaps are scared about change or they don't know quite what it's going to mean. Um, but this situation, um, in some senses, is a silver lining provides an opportunity to trial some schemes because the benefits are really obvious in terms of safety, providing space for exercise, um, allowing people to socially distance but still get outside. And we could trial some of these schemes. So um, it's interesting to think, could we just be putting in some street closures on routes that have a lot of cars speeding down that aren't key routes for motor vehicles, and then perhaps children could play out on their, on their own streets, or people can run up and down or walk or cycle safely. Um, so that's the context. Um, yes, I don't know if, Danny or Lucy, what you think about that? Had you heard about any of this going on in any cities, or do you have any initial thoughts about I'm a bit cynical that 
things are going to change or things are going to naturally go somewhere really progressive afterwards but then again when you but then i do understand that you say things about like children playing in the street so if you have street closures and people can experience what that looks like to have children playing in the street rather than cars whizzing down it that might sort of that whole like visual side of things might help people to imagine what like kind of home zones might look like or um that kind of thing in residential areas but i don't know it's systemic change um i'm not sure it's going to be as automatic as people sort of seem to be suggesting in some conversations yeah but i would say that in in the way that these schemes have been promoted now and just anyway before the whole covid19 situation um, it's often been the way that these schemes have been suggested and the methodology has really been about trialing schemes because it allows a the local people to get involved in the design very quickly and literally the, the opportunity for them to bring say a planter to say we're closing the street this is our street we want to not allow cars to wrap run down it um, but also it means that it's much easier to do politically and also within the system of transport planning and planning because it's much easier to do a temporary road closure to get that through the system. And we're just doing it for trial, so it's just going to be for six months. And you can also collect a lot of data. So you can say when inevitably you're going to have people say, oh, it caused loads of issues. You can come back and say, if it, if it is the case, that look, it actually didn't cause more traffic or it didn't cause as much traffic as you thought on the main road. So a key example of this is in New York when they did a lot of um, changes to the streets and spaces about 10 years ago now with Jeanette Sadiq Khan, um, who was the transport commissioner for New York at the time, where they, for example, created Times Square as an actual square, created some public space there. It was previously very small footways and a lot of space for cars. And a lot of the taxi drivers in New York were complaining about it before it happened, the six months trial of these changes. When it happened, all the taxi drivers were stuck in traffic even more, were delayed everywhere. But what, and I mean, they must have been aware of this, but what they've done is they had trackers on taxis, so they actually knew how long it had taken to go down the route. And they found that it was actually quicker now for taxis to move around the centre of Manhattan or the areas of New York where they were doing it. So they had the data come back and go, look, it actually isn't taking as long. So when the headlines are coming out of, you know, people being, taxi drivers being interviewed and saying it's the worst situation ever, um, they could say, no, actually, well, we know we have cold, hard facts that show that there's less congestion and getting around more quickly. And they may probably were perceived that they've grown more slowly because they're expecting that. It's just a quirk of the human mind, isn't it? If you already have a certain view in a certain way, or so it's a confirmation bias. Um, I guess it works in a similar way to, you know, when um, Extinction Rebellion closed streets and how powerful it is to be able to, like, spatially experience a street that's closed to traffic yeah. um, and to walk down it and how much more powerful that is than the best Photoshop visualisation yeah. of what a street would like if it's pedestrianised. I know we had that in Deansgate in Manchester, didn't we? And that was the basis um, for the calls to pedestrianise. Deansgate, yeah. for example, came after Extinction Rebellion, didn't it? I guess the key difference now is that people aren't moving the way they normally would move and shops, you know, all that shop delivery, you know, shop deliveries aren't being made. You know, all those retail units don't need deliveries coming into the back mm -hmm. of them. So they will say that this is an obstacle. But I guess things, I guess at the end of like lockdown, things will come back gradually. So it'll just be interesting. You know, it won't be one day we're all just going to like go back out to work and go back out to the shops. So it, maybe it'd be a gradual thing and that's how you'd be able to see how that might work in practice under more normal times you know i guess that's maybe how it'd work but yeah no i think the key thing is this opportunity to trial it because as you say the power of you know experiencing things directly 
is much stronger than just seeing a visualization of it or just hearing it described. I'm gonna, we're gonna close the street to food traffic. What does that mean? If you can trial it for six months, which is often the case with these schemes in the last few years in the UK, where they've been very successful, or as I say in New York, you know, this is an opportunity to trial it. And I think to see really immediate benefits, and it's very clear to a lot of people now what those benefits would be in this situation. And then once it's in place, you can say, oh, what did you think while this was going on? You can see people's feedback and ask people, you know, do, do you think this worked on your street? Do you want to keep it? Because in reality, what's happened when they have trialed these schemes anywhere outside of this situation, I've not heard of any situation where people didn't want to keep it. The, you know, sort of street closures or widening footways or cycle lanes. Yeah, so I think we've had a opportunity for that. I don't know if you have any thoughts, Danny. Um, the difference with these things is the, the perception for, for people with necessity. And I think that is always the main barrier in, in normal times is that the first question is, you know, why are you doing this? Is this necessary? Whereas the, yeah, you know, the main sort of, suppose the main sort of, yeah, circumstance now is that there is a clear group consensus for people like, yeah, that is good because I can see the direct benefit of that. Now, I think that, the, the issue is that in normal times when you try and implement things like street closures or uh, widening bicycle lanes is that there's not a sort of big headline direct benefit that everyone can get behind. You know, it always yeah. seems like motorists are going to lose out. There's someone yeah. who's losing out where at the minute there is no clear loser in this mm. yeah. scenario. And but you know, I think there's something that you, you both sort of kept, both not kept using, but was, came up was clear. John, you using it, Lucy, you using this sort of word clear, this is clear that this is, you know, here. And that's the main obstacle most of the time is trying to make these things clear. And I think there's probably a lesson there for, for planners and, and designers to, to really think about how they are communicating it and being able to boil things. So it's like anything in life, politics, any form of communication. How mm -hmm. can I succinctly communicate this to the, the, the people um, yeah. that are most in need of it? So that's, that's sort of my main thoughts that's interesting. I agree that you always need to make the case clear as to why are we doing these interventions in you know, normal times around street closures or cycle lanes or widening footways or improving park spaces. And there's a, re a real wealth of evidence now that's been built up and being added to around reducing air pollution, which we know is linked to people's health of all ages. And but also around getting people more active. So with Waltham Forest, you've seen with the interventions they've done there that they've got more people walking and cycling for half an hour a week, more cycling on average. And we know that's linked to people's well-being in terms of public health, but also they've seen a 216% increase over the first year of the implementation of their scheme with street closures and, and widening footways, for example, of what they call static street use, which is people just spending time on the streets and actually chatting with their neighbours, the children playing, it could be simply just people watching. And we know that is linked um, to building those light social relationships that build community and really have an effect on people's mental health and well-being. And so there really is an evidence base um, around why are we doing these things, but you're right, it needs to be communicated from the very beginning. And that's where, yeah, you, you're gonna miss out if you don't communicate that to local community because these schemes we want to be bottom up. Right, let's move on. So second topic, Lucy, can you introduce that for us, please? So, you know, amid all these debates that were going on, I think the kind of thoughts I'd been having were really around sort of community and like 
and physical space. A lot of like my observations have been around those kind of things, particularly thinking about housing and the spaces that we live in. And obviously home and housing has become like a completely all consuming like concern for everyone because we're like limited to our houses, um, whatever they might be. I think what's kind of interesting for me is that the coronavirus crisis has caused these like almost like two opposing forces. So on the one hand, you know, there's this centrifugal force. We're all being physically like, and socially distanced from each other. So we're sort of moving apart from each other. Right? We're walking around each other on pavements and all this kind of stuff. But then at the same time, you know, we're being like drawn together into communities much more so and i think that's that's quite a widespread thing i think the idea that we're it's becoming very tangible how much we rely on other people and how much we rely on people who are actually quite spatially proximate to us um regardless of all the remote tools and that kind of thing and i think you know there's been a few bits of like commentary like flying around around how you know coronavirus might change the shape of our cities and um because these social changes often shape the kind of the very the very form and sort of morphology of our like cities right you know diseases in the past and pandemics in the past have altered urban form and you know just people starting to work through those ideas um and i guess one of the questions is whether like what's the image of this you know the, the enduring image of this crisis going to be is it going to be people sat like meters away from each other you know on separate benches and fighting over toilet roll or is it going to be the rainbows people walking past rainbows in other people's windows do you know what i mean or or those, those people in frodsham who the street in frodsham where they've gone outside i don't know if you heard about them and, and shared a sort of a cuppa along the whole street do you know what i mean sort of shouting across to each other or like knocking on all people's windows you know what is the enduring image going to be and i, and I really kind of hope it's the latter but you know it, there have been some people talking about these sort of um you know dystopian views of the, the sort of socially distanced city which i find quite interesting because um i feel like the socially distanced city is more it's pretty close to what we've been building since the 1960s actually because we've been very much it's been very centrifugal it's been very kind of atomized and suburban kind of buildings where we've been retreating into our private space a lot of the new stuff that's been built this very like low density stuff i kind of contest that i think what we're seeing with coronavirus is it's kind of um what it's doing to the way we live in some ways it seems to undermine everything we've been saying you know in kind of urbanist circles like what people like myself and john have been like harping on about for ages is around dense human scale cities um the important of density the important of like vibrant public street life you know this kind of jane jacobs like ballet pavement ballet kind of stuff you know everything like the, the kind of urbanist dream seems to undermine all of that because obviously we can't have a you know jane jacobs pavement ballet because we're all like supposed to be two meters apart from each other i think if you look beneath it there's a lot that counterintuitively like reinforces the, the need for density like i'm very much among the crowd that think this should not absolutely not lead to something where we start to be worried about density just because density and places you know seems to be the place where a virus can thrive right maybe although there's a lot of to be honest there's a lot of like doubt about whether that goes for outside spaces as well as indoor spaces i think there's quite a lot of confusion over that as well but again i think the point is that what it has done is it's really revealed the ways that we rely upon people whether they're neighbors people who are quite near to us um so what i think is kind of interesting like anecdotally is is obviously we've all been relying on remote tools we're now sitting talking to each other over zoom which is great you know it would take me a while to cycle over to danny's place in salford um no, that'd be a fast cycle longer than 20 minutes um but and, and those remote tools are great in helping us sort of keep going um and talk to people who are completely you know who it's not viable to go and see at all but i think that 
those are often those tools are often most effective when they're anchored spatially by something so for instance i think i was telling you about you john about this the other day you know a colleague of mine who uh lives in bristol and it lives on a street where they had uh, a street rave you know online street rave um along the street she has a couple of kids because it's bristol there's like three djs on the street who also like community activists you know so everyone has their own light systems but you know it's all completely online so so they were they were on the screen and people were sort of trying to work out what to do and i'm thinking that has much more power because it's people who live next door to each other and already have a basis of knowing each other bumping into each other on the street and then that can be kind of enhanced by remote tools whereas if it was just you know one person in bristol another person up in dundee you know that you know it, it would it's nice to be able to have an online rape but it maybe doesn't have quite the same power so i feel like we shouldn't let the the reliance on remote tools um sort of undermine how important being in a physical space with each other is when when we're able to do so and i think that for the same reason people talking about the remote working thing which i think maybe there will be more remote working because everyone's you know realized that microsoft teams exists and whatever but I, th I don't think you know i'm dying to get back to the office because i think you know the teams i work with we do work better when we're discussing things in person it's great being able to talk to them on teams and, and we're playing around with interesting tools for how you do kind of interactive workshops and that kind of thing um, but I think those offices themselves perform a much bigger social function than the pure like mechanical um, getting work done and getting project management done using remote tools. So I think um, that's kind of quite important to not to, you know, not to lose sight of the fact that being close spatially to other people is really important. You know, I mean, as soon as the Internet became more and more uh, sort of central to how we live people started saying well that's the end of um space and clustering because you know we have no need to be near each other because we're all remotely connected and that and that just didn't happen at all you got this clustering effect businesses next to each other um people wanting to live in certain communities near to other people you know it that didn't happen at all and i, I don't really think it'll have a big impact on that maybe from a from a transport planning point of view John and just a congestion point of view it might be useful if people were encouraged to like work one day from home but to be honest it's not the whole population who's able to work from home um it's a very kind of middle class professional services kind of thing and, and a lot of them do already work a day from home so so i think that there is some like opportunity for like small gains in that but i don't think it's transformational um and the only other thing that i was kind of it led me to think about was you know as i mentioned earlier i'm part of this kind of co-housing group trying to set up a co-housing community um in the next few years in in manchester um and these co-housing communities you know as, as a brief background they're sort of like intentional communities where they are uh, as it tends to describe it to people halfway between sort of a hippie commune and a private house so you have you know as, as someone in my family likes to describe it as you know lucy's commune which is not because you have your private space but then you have a lot of public space you'll have a communal building um and and you just live in in a, in a much more intentional community you do a bit of shared eating a bit of shared like supplying and that kind of stuff um and there's there's something called the uk co-housing network and in their newsletter the other day they had a few updates and one of them was from um the marmalade lane someone living in the marmalade lane co-housing scheme in uh, cambridge which has been quite kind of lauded and quite well known you know among the development community it's a different way of doing development you know with these traffic free um, pedestrianized areas and and anyway this was one of those residents talking about what it was like to live in a co-housing community through coronavirus because obviously you know their common house is completely empty um all these spaces public spaces where the children usually play together had to be policed they had some rota going on around when children were allowed to play where um you know they're kind of living on top of each other more than we're used to 
Um, but some of the things that they do, some of the systems they have to operate as a community really come into their own. So whether it's like the bulk food buying, whether it's helping out vulnerable members of the community, helping out people when they're self-isolated, just knowing how people are and how they're doing was made much easier by them being in that community. And I think this, this kind of, um, this reflection from someone at, at Marmalade Lane ended, you know, ended up saying, I'm, I've never been more glad now to live in this kind of community. So it's quite a new one than, than I have been before. Um, and I think what's interesting is some of the things that we're seeing set up on like streets, you know, like WhatsApp groups, I don't know, our, our street, you know, my, my family's street set up a WhatsApp group just to check in, you know, if everyone's self-isolating, if anyone's self-isolating, do they need help? And so we're actually setting up some of those structures that move towards more of a sort of co-housing type setup. And, and one thing I do wonder whether it'll come out of this is be a, a revaluation of um, community um, and a revaluation of some of those structures and, 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 a, and a big push for, you know, just a useful opportunity to plug co-housing as, as, as a way of living in the future, particularly into generational projects, right? Because so much of this is about supporting people in other, in other generations. Very nice. Danny, any thoughts? I think for, for me, the, the question that I was thinking of was with, with co-housing as an idea, what are the, why can't, you know, why, I, one, why isn't everyone doing this? What are the barriers there? And that could, you know, I know Ooh, can of worms here. I know there's many there. So <laughs> if I could maybe ask you then, Lucy, what the top three barriers in your opinion <laughs> are to it? Because fundamentally to, to someone like me, that sounds like a great idea and um, I'd be interested in doing it. So what are the barriers? So three reasons why everyone isn't doing co-housing. Firstly, it's just bloody difficult um and that's the reality you need so much kind of energy and and a bit of skill really to get through it so they usually so far take up to like probably five average five six years to get going and quite a lot of sort of work for free in between so our group happens to have an architect a planner a sort of website designer who does our website just have to, to be in the same group of the of these families who are sort of set up um, but it's just it's just hard work there's a lot of stuff to navigate and and the second thing is related which is about land so it's incredibly difficult to get land in greater manchester there's been sort of a move to set up a community-led housing hub that's supposed to make this a little bit easier and paul dennett our favorite mayor of salford is 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 he's got like the housing portfolio and he's given a lot of sort of political support as far as i understand to this kind of community-led housing thing which is not just co-housing it's also cooperatives and the idea is to try and get people try and get authorities to release land because the reality is if you end up on the private market bidding against private developers for a co-house you'll never be able to make the money work um so you need um either a, a really shitty site that no one else meet wants which is what like in the stroud co-housing community is like it's on this kind of like big slope and no developer would ever wants to develop it or you get something that maybe is an old hospital or you get public local authority owned land but then that you need a lot of support from local authorities and it'd be nice to have a lot more of that and and the finances you know i think the reality is that that there's a lot that are trying to make them more affordable uh, there's a lot of kind of models, so particularly the Lilac model in Leeds is quite interesting. They have this MHOF sort of system, which helps to make it more affordable for people. Um, but I think probably the reality is that most people who move into these are maybe already own their own home, you know, and, and they sell that equity and put it into their co-housing sort of, you know, cooperatively owned sort of mortgage. So I'm not sure it's an entirely affordable, you know, to make to make them really diverse communities. Hopefully that'll change. And what it needs is sort of scaling up and, and giving more policy attention so it can be made easier. Because like you say, 
most people are just not going to go through that hassle for like and stress for, for for five years and have the money to put behind it and and go to all those meetings and set up CLTs and all this kind of stuff. But if you look at places where it's much more widespread, so Denmark, you know the usual candidates: Denmark, Switzerland, the ones who do everything really well. Switzerland has an amazing ecosystem of cooperatives where they've been sort of set up a lot of them since the 1960s. Have paid off their mortgage now, supporting these other cooperatives and the cooperatives themselves. In well, this is in Zurich particularly. They are actually quite a strong lobbying force in the local government um, to to push for making this a bit easier. So yeah, I think I think you're right, Danny. It's like a lot of people listen to this and think, oh, this would be great. It kind of sounds quite utopian and great. Although some people are a bit worried about not getting on with their neighbours, but I think the path is just a bit too thorny for most people to want to go down. Also, it's just not something people are aware of. It's not a model that we're used to. You know, we're so used to this speculative private sector-led housing that we don't even think about it. And we don't, and I don't even well enough understand how the more cooperative way of doing it works, you know. There's a whole episode, if not a few episodes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> hopefully later this series, I think, will be good. So yeah, watch this absolutely. space. Um, so yeah, I think we should perhaps move on to the final part of this podcast, which we wanted to basically quiz Danny. So do you want to just give a little brief introduction about where you live, Danny? And, uh, yeah. and then we, we might we, fire some COVID-19 crisis-based questions at you about yeah. that. Okay. So without trying to give too much away, I don't want people, I don't know, knocking down <laughs> my door. Um, I'm going to be smoking so- to your windows, Danny. So um, I live in a... too much away as windows. <laughs> yeah, oh, there we go. <laughs> so yeah, so hopefully try and succinctly explain this. So where I live is in what we kind of call central Salford. But to put that into a little bit more context, it's like five minute walk away, just over the river is the, the city centre of Manchester. And at the minute where I live in, in central Salford has is, is been un- undergoing lots of regeneration, lots of new apartments uh, being built. Um, we have what's called timekeepers square just just close by which is sort of townhouses and is a another two um plots of townhouses being developed but also that sort of intermix with these semi-detached houses um on on like an estate i'd call it i don't know if that's the right the right word um mm-hmm. and all of these things are sort of being mixed together and also very close by then mid density tower blocks i call them as well just sort of near islington mill and things like that um with a little bit of a small small park so it's quite an interesting very mixed area um but like lots of places on the on the fringes of city centers and, and particularly manchester as well so it's been quite interesting for me to nearby we have peel park as well so there's lots of people exercising because um apart from this sort of small-ish housing estate there's very little sort of garden and, and private front of the building where I live. So going sitting on the on the stoop of the building, having a cup of tea and, and thinking of that as my garden space. Um Do you see other people doing that, Danny. One one other guy does that. And that makes it good though, because it feels as if, if everyone was doing that, then it would feel like the wrong thing to be doing. And then finally just sort of being in the area where construction work is still going on. And that, obviously, so that must must be deemed as essential work. I think that's really interesting about why why construction work is still ongoing um and you know there's, there's some townhouses being built right on chapel street which is sort of the main road going into manchester city center um and you know that that's being worked on all, all the way you can hear that you can hear the cranes you know most of the day i've got well, a question Danny. that's kind well, of a, uh uh i don't know which one it takes in it's more of a general question um and it's about like well it's about kind of the, the, the what around sulfur central right there's 
there's just such huge fast paced change going on isn't there you know like like what you were talking about it's an incredibly new community so there's bits you know of existing community in the old existing pub but i think it's kind of one of the biggest concentrations of development in like the country over recent recent years isn't it around central sulfur so it is a very like new kind of regenerated community and quite fresh so those community links aren't really there yet um and i was wondering how that kind of place reacts to kind of the stuff I was talking about people coming together are there like whatsapp groups for buildings are there like is there that kind of dependence on each other do people interact more than they normally would do because you know we see these places that, that spring up as quite kind of sometimes kind of quite anonymous places to be or at least just quite quite fresh ones right that haven't had time to bed in um and 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 people are usually kind of newly moved in and I'm wondering if if any of that is happening do you feel like you've been closer to neighbors do you see much community stuff going on or is that a, a thing that's exclusively happening kind of established potentially suburban or communities or or, or or more just more established in a city community as well where i think it's also happening the same way yeah good question it's something that i when this was sort of uh, emerging and the fact that we you know we thought we were, you know it was looking very likely that we go to this lockdown uh situation i, I expected more to happen and it hasn't really the most that i've noticed is that when you walk past people there's more of a tendency for younger people to say hello now usually i always i'm the stereotype for me is sort of like an an aging sort of man who would say good afternoon at you as you pass him in the street or something like that um whereas i've noticed today when you know i had to nip out and, and get some food at the weekend there was a little bit more of people just sort of nodding and acknowledging each other that is the extent of it there's no sort of building whatsapp there's no sort of community in the communal area of the apartment building where i live the where the letterboxes are sorry there's no sort of signs up or anything like that no there's no sense of added community that's been put forward by anybody uh, including myself i haven't thought funny you mentioned that I haven't thought myself to take up any responsibility to do that because I feel you know I'm very much sort of zero I feel very much zeroed in here the fact that mm. the only person that I'm spending any amount of time with is my partner who I live with um and that's it I very rarely see my neighbors anyway which is interesting yeah. because there's so many of them <laughs> just in my yeah. building and there is, there is one other guy who sits on the square just at the front that I see <laughs> in an afternoon he usually has a little smoke I gave him a thumbs up the other day I got, I got one <laughs> So no, as far as I can see, in terms of my experience, and I'd love for, if anyone's listening to this Urban Design Room podcast and they live in a city centre, if they do have any stories um, across the country or, or where they live outside the country, that'd be great to hear about, right? We have a Twitter that still still exists, doesn't it, John? Yeah, it does still exist. Hopefully, get oh, it Send your stories. Yeah, so that'd be great. At so, Urban no, Design Room. At Urban Design Room on Twitter, you can find yeah. us. Um, but no, my, my answer to that, Lucy, is um, no emerging sense of community or sort of uh, in, increased sense of community. Having been in Daddy's apartment, I no, it doesn't have a balcony. You don't have a balcony, do you? Yeah. No. Nope. That's also Nothing. not giving away your address. <laughs> no. Can't go around all the flats without balconies. But I think that balconies are like a key protagonist in the global coronavirus story, right? Because again, like imagery, like if you think about you know one of the images that i hope you know ends up being kind of enduring after the coronavirus crisis is the stuff that's going on in balconies mainly in europe right in continental europe around italy and you know a friend of mine who's in the netherlands actually uh she sent me a picture of her street you know having in quite like dense urban like dutch neighborhood with some balconies and they're playing concerts to each other you know all those videos that are doing the rounds 
Um, and I feel like balconies are kind of an interesting, what, is it, what do they call them, John? Threshold spaces or something? Those kind of like terraces, balconies, that kind of thing that you don't need a private garden, but a balcony enables you to, it helps out that kind of human scale as, as long as it's not on a big, really tall tower block. But if you have these sort of human scale, five, six floors with balconies, you know, you've got this engagement with the space around you and the engagement with people walking past in a way that you don't have if you don't have a balcony. Mm. Um, you know, and, I, and I'm looking, I'm thinking, well, if you have a private garden, it's nice, right? So you can sit in a garden. But most people, how most people gardens work is you're kind of quite enclosed, uh, probably maybe you can spot your neighbor over the fence or if it's our fence it's been blown down the neighbor comes through it because <laughs> it's blown down a storm but otherwise you don't get much engagement with the outside world whereas with a balcony yeah you have less space but you're much more engaged with what's going on in the public space around you and I think if you imagine some of those Italian streets without balconies it's a very different experience um, of being at home you're either at home or not at home whereas with a balcony you've got this in-between space yeah. and I think balconies look like a really fun place to uh, be quarantined if you're going to be quarantined anywhere. Yeah. Young Gale a lot of people might know from designers out there or planners um, in terms of human scale term popularized he talks a lot about that and he watched and studied a lot of people in terms of exact um, amount of front garden which was enough for people to feel comfortable sitting outside in this sort of semi-public semi-private space which again is just putting people in the public space or within view of the public space and feel safer and it's more of an opportunity for people to have a chat maybe make friends but not forcing them to do it and that's a key thing not forcing people to get together but um I think you do a bit of forcing you know I think I think <laughs> one thing that I th that I realized yesterday was that we've got um, a rainbow up in the window right uh that the next kid next door uh drew, drew for us which is very nice and those teddy bears the teddy bear teddy bear in the window thing i don't know we've got some teddy bears up there there's a teddy bear thing going on this part of Salford. and um but the thing is because we're set back from from the street with a front garden that is barely used as most front gardens are barely used right mm. they're, they're broadly ornamental as far as I can see front gardens you very rarely see people sat in them but actually no one would really notice this rainbow or this you know yeah. these kind of communication efforts of reaching out to people and also it's in a cul-de-sac so it comes back to this cul-de-sac thing right so you don't get an awful lot of people passing through anyway because you're not on a grid network right so I think those kind of design issues are quite interesting um in terms of how difficult it is to sort of communicate and engage other people from your home like again that's the same issue around balconies but um you stick something in your window they're probably not going to see it if, if if you're in this very kind of suburban pattern of housing with setbacks big setbacks do you think have you seen more of your neighborhood since being restricted in terms of where you can go like further afield to go for stuff i know you've been going quite regularly to your local park um is that something you're doing more now and in terms of how you were saying you're using the square outside your apartment as your garden was that something you were doing at all before and do you think that's just you or do you think everyone else is doing it and acting its own way if that's good okay so i think i'm definitely spending more time seeing more of the neighborhood that i live in um the one of the big reasons for that is that I feel less comfortable actually going into the city centre of Manchester for some reason. I feel as if that doesn't make sense and it's not the right thing for me to do. And I should be sticking into, feel like I should be sticking to my neighbourhood. Um, so when we're going out for sort of our, our daily allocation of walking or if I'm jogging, I stick to my perceived 
neighborhood, which is interesting itself that I, I very, I'm defining that myself as not being in one direction because it, I could easily just cross the river and spend, you know, the, the exact same distance over the river into Manchester city center isn't that much difference, right? Why am I making decision? So I'm defining what I deem as my own neighborhood via probably the, the street, the streets and, and the way that they're put together. But I think actually it's about, you really come into focus about hardly anything is open in Manchester city center apart from the odd Tesco and co-op, apart from that, it is the, the, the use of the space is a defunct right now. The, there's nothing, there's no reason to go there, you know, and you realise how important city centre cores are because there's reasons to go there and that's why people use them, start being close to other people doing mm -hmm. similar things. I feel very much more sort of aware and in, in tune with my neighbourhood now as well mm. you know about you know taking time the time outside feels precious because you know we're really trying to stick to that sort of one hour outside so you you try and soak it up a little bit more and, and you know the texture of the buildings and and the way things the way it's laid out all those little um intricacies i'm lots more you know a lot more sort of appreciative and aware of um i think and that's been some you know a, an effect of this on me personally mm, yeah, that's nice. really interesting yeah so any other comments? Any other thoughts before we close this episode? I'm looking forward to going to the pub. I'm <laughs> and I hope that everyone's keeping safe. As yeah. well. I hope everyone's all right. Yeah, yeah. It's you yeah. know, it's interesting what Johnny, what Danny was talking about. Johnny, I've merged you into one person. <laughs> <laughs> what Danny was talking about, about, you know, really, like there's actually some, you know, as long as you're in a relatively safe space, it's quite a nice, nice things about there are some nice things you know about how much we stop and notice things and but then there's occasion and so i find myself sometimes quite enjoying the retreats of it like things slowing down a bit but then i did um i, I was watching the, the streaming of the national theater of both the national theater productions that have been on the last two weeks i was watching the screen of jane Eyre last year and at the end of the um recording um you hear the people sort of streaming out of the theatre and this kind of hum of people sort of chatting and you can imagine them spilling out onto South Bank in London and and it was that was the first time I'd really listened to something and thought like you say oh, I kind of miss the pub I was like oh yeah I do, I do miss being in a crowd more than I thought you know but I hadn't realized it until yeah. then because I was quite enjoying the solitude at, at times um but yeah hearing that hum of people leaving the theatre and imagining that I thought yeah okay there's there's, there's like there's joy in that there's a lot of joy in that. Yeah. Yeah. I just like to say welcome back to anyone who's listened before and maybe thought, oh, Herb Design is back. We're hoping for it to be back. We want to put out some more episodes over the coming weeks. So keep your eyes and ears open for that. And just want to wish everyone well during this COVID 19 crisis. And hopefully in a few months, um, things will be starting to get back to normal. And um, maybe we'll be able to reflect on some of the things that we've talked about in this episode and whether we can see some changes um, in our cities and neighborhoods and place where we live so until next time thank you for listening i hope some of what we said has been interesting and um it's goodbye from me and um goodbye from me <laughs> and goodbye from me stay well everyone hello that's a very uh, university challenge um, <laughs> stay safe everyone who's listening and um hopefully you'll listen in again soon